0: Luke 10, verse 25. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind
1: Let's go to the Lord in prayer once more. Heavenly Father, we recognize that your words have power. Because you spoke, all of creation came into being. And we heard your words read to us, and even reading them ourselves. Whether it be when we were in our mother's womb, our parents read the scriptures to us. Or even as we grew up in the church, we read and heard the stories of the Bible And because we've heard them so often, it's easy for us to tune our ears out, especially when the Word of God is taught or even when it's preached, because the stories of the Bible have become so familiar to us. But we ask that your Spirit would be able to open up our ears to hear and that you would be able to open our eyes to be able to see the wonderful truths that you would have for us to behold this morning, that as we taste and see we would indeed be able to say that your word is like honey to our lips and also refreshing to our souls. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Years ago, I had the opportunity to study abroad in China. One of my good friends there, his name was Robbie. He was a classmate of mine. He was a Caucasian from the Midwest studying Chinese. And it's kind of embarrassing because his Chinese was definitely much better than mine, even though he had only studied two semesters, and I had grown up speaking it all my life. Now, there was one instance when we were eating at McDonald's. I don't know why we were eating McDonald's in China. All I remember is that we ate at McDonald's because we had to catch the bus rather quickly to get to our next destination, so we needed a quick meal, After we finished our meal, we had a great time of conversation. We left to go and try and catch our bus along with our classmates. And so Robbie and I continued our conversation. I walked slightly ahead of him, so I couldn't see him out of the periphery of my eye, but I just turned my head to continue our conversation with him. And I eventually asked him a question, but I didn't hear a response. And I said, Robbie? Robbie? And I turned around, and Robbie was nowhere to be found. And so I looked around the crowd of Chinese people, and I saw Robbie knelt down next to this boy, this homeless boy. And he was asking this homeless boy if he would be able to buy him a hamburger from McDonald's. And you could hear the homeless boy's dad nearby yelling at his son, saying, just get the guy's money. Don't say yes to the hamburger. Just get the money. And you can obviously hear him say, get it from the foreigner, because Robbie was white. And Robbie just continued to persist to try and buy this boy a hamburger, but the boy eventually refused and ran back to his father. Now, many of you know this, but there's a lot of homeless people in China much like here in Houston. They're on every street corner, on every street that you walk down. And our program director told us, don't give them money because they're swindlers on the streets. And so we were taught to just walk past them. But for some reason, this story about Robbie kneeling down, talking to this young boy, still continued to leave a mark in my mind. Because of this, even though I'd walked through the crowd, how come I didn't see him? How come I didn't see the homeless little boy that was asking for money? Why did Robbie see him? And had I become so desensitized to the homeless, to those who have needs around me, that I failed to see the need that is there? I think sometimes that because there's so many needs around us, it oftentimes prevents us from being able to really love our neighbors. There's so many things, so many priorities crying out for our attention that we fail to see. Besides the panhandler on the street that we see regularly, or the coworker that's in our office that oftentimes needs help, or maybe our classmate that is going through a life issue, a breakup, a difficult friend situation, anxiety, depression. I mean, even here at church, there are so many ministries that need help, that need aid. I mean, every day I receive in my email inbox letters asking for financial help, for good organizations to be able to financially support them. And yet with so many needs around us, sometimes I wonder if we have become desensitized to the needs. A mentor once said to me that if everything is a priority, then nothing is a priority. If everything is important, then nothing really is important. Yet for those of us who are believers, we're called to love our neighbors. We are called to care for them. Yet how do we do that? How do we really love our neighbors as ourselves as God commands us to do so? To answer this question, we'll turn to a very well-known parable, the Good Samaritan, which is found in Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25, which was just read to us. Now, both believers and unbelievers love this story. In fact, they could tell you, perhaps, elements of the story, the Good Samaritan, because it is so well-known. And yet, it serves as an important aspect of our Christian faith because it answers that question how do we love our neighbor? Now, this parable shows us three things that we need to see, that we need to be able to focus on in order to love our neighbor, that there are three aspects, three elements that we need to be able to perceive and to be able to see to love our neighbors well. Well, first, we need to be able to see the needs of our neighbors. We need to be able to be focused and attentive enough to what is the need of our neighbors. How or what is our neighbor requiring from us? But we need to be able to see that. And so Jesus tells this parable of the Good Samaritan to teach a lawyer to see who his neighbor is. Now, oftentimes when we think about a lawyer, we think about a person with suit and tie, perhaps going into the courtroom to argue a case before a judge. It might be a civil law case. It could be a patent law case. But that's not really what the Bible says or means when it says lawyer. Because oftentimes when Luke uses the term lawyer within his his gospel, he's referring to someone who's very well-versed in the Old Testament law. That he knows the Old Testament law like the back of his hand. And this lawyer, trained in the Old Testament law, must have heard of this new teacher in town. This teacher is from some hick town in the north, Nazareth. Well, no training at all. No rigorous, formal training. He's just a carpenter with very little training. And yet he's going throughout countrysides to be able to teach what God requires of us. And so this lawyer, probably pretty confident, wants to test the metal of this young Galilean rabbi. So this lawyer finds Jesus and asks him a question. Not because he really wants to know the answer, but because he wants to test him. That's why in verse 25, it says this, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now this question is kind of odd, because if you look at this question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The only time that you inherit something is if someone dies. If your family member becomes deceased, that's actually when you inherit something. Maybe someone put your name in their will, and so that once they pass, you get their house, maybe their car, maybe their big screen television, or their pet dog. You inherit things only after a person dies. So it's an odd question, but what the lawyer may be trying to get at is, how do I get in the in crowd? That when, the, when judgment comes, that will be part of those who are saved. Because that is why he says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Is about what can this lawyer do to be able to have eternal life? So, Jesus, being a very shrewd person, he answers the question with another question. He asked in verse 26, what is written in the law? How do you read it? In essence, Jesus saying, well, You're a lawyer. Why don't you tell me? How would you summarize the law? And of course, the lawyer says, easy peasy. He goes in his mind and he thinks, of course. Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And following that is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. But as your neighbor, as yourself, that's not from Deuteronomy chapter 6. So where did the lawyer get that from? Well, it's because the lawyer thought of Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, where it says, love your neighbor as yourself. And so how does this lawyer do for Jesus' pop quiz? Well, Jesus says in verse 28, And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. You pass with flying colors. 100%, A+. Now go do it. And then the lawyer is like, well, hang on a second. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself? Hmm. I'm not so quite sure if I'm able to pass or do those things. Because love your neighbor as yourself? In Leviticus chapter 19, it's talking about loving your Israelite neighbor. So is that what he means? And so of course desiring to justify himself, to vindicate himself, to show himself approved and saved, he asked Jesus this question, And who is my neighbor? Who is this neighbor that you speak of? And Jesus then launches in to the well-known parable of the Good Samaritan. So you know this. There's a man who is traveling down from Jerusalem to Jericho. This journey takes about 16 to 17 miles. It's a very treacherous, dangerous journey because you never know as you hit that corner, is there going to be a robber? Is there going to be a vagrant? Is there going to be some kind of bandit out there to get you? And unfortunately, this man turns the wrong corner and he gets ambushed. Not only ambushed, he gets beaten up Stripped, and he's left half dead. Uh, Verse 30 says this, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now this guy who's laying on the side of the road with his skin exposed to the burning sun, blood pouring from his wounds, and not even being able to see quite straight as he looks ahead and just sees a haze, must be wondering, Man, if just someone would come down this road, I would be saved. If someone would just see me. Well, lucky for him, there's someone that does come down this road. There is a priest. Verse 31 says, now by chance a priest was going down that road. And if this injured man on the side of the road had a list of would-be rescuers, the priest would probably be near the top of his list. But then as this priest comes by, he probably is thinking. Now, I don't know if he thought this, but he may have thought this. Oh, there's a dead guy besides the sides of the road. I just finished my week of service in the temple. I would hate for my shadow to even touch this man. Because according to the law, if my shadow touches a dead person, I'd be defiled. And then I have to go all the way back up to Jerusalem... And I also have to do the rites of cleansing in order to be free of my defilement. And even if I touch this guy and I go back to Jericho, maybe back home, what am I going to tell people? I returned from temple service, but I'm unclean. All the priest saw, possibly, was defilement. And so what did he do? He passed on by. And so this guy, injured beside the side of the road must be wondering, okay, this guy just passed me. Is there any hope that someone else will come down this road? And lucky for him, there is another guy, a Levite. This Levite is coming down the road towards the injured man. And of course, he comes to that place and sees him. But what does the Levite see? Maybe the Levite might be thinking, oh man, The priest has already sent me on an assignment to Jericho, and I'm already running late. The priest hates it when I'm late. I mean, I don't know what kind of punishment that he might have for me. Besides, I'm the Levite. I'm kind of like the assistant pastor. All I do is manage the scroll, sweep the floors of the temple, make sure the animal is clean. That's what I'm supposed to do. I, I can't do this. And besides, I already have a job. I have a task. I have an assignment. This man would just be an interruption to my schedule. And so the Levite sees an interruption. And what does he do? He passes on by. Now at this time of the story, the lawyer must be thinking, okay, the priest, fail. Levite, fail. But the next guy must be a lawyer coming up. He's going to come down that road, and he's going to save this injured man. And so imagine his surprise when Jesus says, now a Samaritan. Now the lawyer's like, what? What? A Samaritan? No, it can't be a Samaritan. Because if you knew anything about Samaritans, the Jews hated the Samaritans. There's such bad blood between Jew and Samaritans. I mean, the Jews said that to eat with a Samaritan was like eating pork. Not a good thing. It's kind of like the bad blood that still exists between Jew and Arab in the Middle East or even the bad blood that once existed between Chinese and Japanese during World War II, that there is such animosity between these people that he couldn't believe that a Samaritan would come? That would make no sense. But what does the Samaritan see? In verse 33, it says this, But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, this word compassion has this idea of being hit in the gut, that his insides were moved to have compassion. Now, it's interesting because a lot of times our very strong emotions hit us in the gut because when you see that person that you've always admired and had affection for and the fact that they speak to you, where do you how do you feel? You get butterflies in your stomachs, right? Right? Or when you're extremely nervous or anxious about something, about teaching or doing an assignment or taking a test, you feel nauseous, also in your gut. And so this Samaritan, when he sees this injured man on the side of the road, he feels it in his gut, this compassion, this empathy, and this need to help. Did you notice that all three of these men saw this injured man on the side of the road. The priest failed to see the injured man because what he saw was defilement. The Levite failed to see the injured man because all he could see was possibly an interruption to his schedule. But when the Samaritan sees the man, he feels compassion. But why is that? Why is it that of the three men, only the Samaritan felt compassion? I think it's because... Who you are determines what you see. What you are and who you are determines what you see. Now you may be wondering, well, what does that even mean? Weeks ago, Josephine and I had the opportunity to go to Chicago, and we had a chance to go on an architecture boat tour. That means you sail on this boat down the river of Chicago, and you're able to see buildings. Now, I'm no architectural genius. When we were on this tour, All I saw was tall building, short building. Building with a lot of glass, building with very little glass. Flat top, pointed top, building, building, building. That's all I saw. But then if you were to ask the tour guide, and you would ask him about a building, he would be able to tell you the era in which it was built. What kind of design philosophy was used? Art, deco, modern, postmodern, gothic. He would even be able to tell you who even was the architect for that building. Frank Lloyd Wright, Louis Sullivan, names that I have never even heard of until this tour. When this tour guide saw the building, he saw a masterpiece, a beauty. And what did I see? A building. Because who you are determines what you see, and it's true of life. A doctor sees a body differently than a person who has no medical training. An auto mechanic is able to see a car differently than a person who has no mechanical experience whatsoever. So, who you are determines what you see. But if who we are determines what we see, then as believers, who are we? How is our sight calibrated? What determines what we see? And for those of us who are followers of Christ, we recognize that it's our identity in Christ that helps us be able to see. So it brings us to our second point, that we have to learn to see that God has put you there in a situation to meet the needs of your neighbor. That God has put us oftentimes in specific context, specific circumstances, to be able to see the needs of our neighbor. Uh, prior to this parable, we have Jesus teaching how God gives sight to his followers. That Jesus says that it is God who reveals things to the people who follow him. But what does God reveal to them? Well, first, we see that Jesus' followers see God's saving work in Christ. Uh, we see this in verse 21. It says this, In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. That God reveals the saving work of Christ, not to the wise, not to the knowledgeable, even though biblical scholarship and theological understanding is important, but it's to those who are simple-minded that God opens their eyes to be able to see the salvation that is offered through Christ. And he continues to say, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. That only God can reveal to us our need, and the means to meet that need through Christ, and to respond. That followers of Christ see God's saving work in the Savior. Now the second thing that followers see is Christ establishing his kingdom. That he's bringing about change into this world. And we see this in verse 23. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. That the disciples were able to see Jesus' ministry, to cast out demons, to heal the leper, to heal different diseases, to bring about change in this world that is broken by sin. That we as followers see that we are driven, not by the ethics of this world, but by a kingdom ethic that is known by love for God and love for neighbor. And if we are to see that we are to love God and to love neighbor, then we also have to understand that as his followers, we also see ourselves as continuing the work that Christ began to love our neighbors. Now, if you read throughout the biblical history and biblical stories, you'll always find out that God's people are always getting themselves into trouble. They are always suffering the effects of their sin. And God always seems to raise up an individual, an outcast, a nobody, to save them. Think about the time of judges. Who does God raise up as a judge to deliver the people from the Midianites? Gideon, from the smallest tribe of Manasseh. No one would have ever expected Gideon to lead the people of Israel against Midian and to succeed. Or think of the time when Israel was suffering under the hand of the Philistines. And who would God raise up? A shepherd boy, the youngest of many sons. A boy named David to save Israel from the Philistines. A king. And who would God choose? Someone that wasn't quite well known. An outcast. Save us from our sin. Because, like the injured man on the side of the road, we may not be struggling from blood from our wounds, but we're suffering from the effects of sin and the brokenness of this world. And who does God raise up to save us? A no name rabbi from a town that nobody even thinks very much of Jesus Christ. A person that everybody thought was an illegitimate son because Mary was pregnant with him before she was even married. A person that was misunderstood by his disciples and by the religious leaders. And God would use Jesus, who's like the Samaritan, to save the injured man, to save us from sin. And when we were saved, not many of us here would say that Yes, of course God would choose me, but we were also unexpectedly chosen by God, and that we are also sent out to this world as outcasts, as unlikely individuals, to be able to love our neighbor. For just as Jesus Christ was driven by a love for God to love his neighbor, us, we are also driven by a love for God to love our neighbor as ourselves. So God oftentimes reveals to you the needs of your neighbor for you to see. That God oftentimes spotlights different individuals in your context to be able to meet their needs. This means that you are not responsible for meeting every single individual person's needs because you don't have the time or the resources to do so. But there are certain individuals that God will bring along your path, that God will bring into your life, that you are to see their need. Now, what are you supposed to do once you see their need? This brings us to our third point. That we have to see that you meet the needs of your neighbor. That's not just good enough to see the need, to be able to articulate it, to be able to say what the need is, but we have to be able to think about meeting that need, to be able to fulfill it. That we need to see that you meet the needs of your neighbor. And we see here that the Samaritan meets the needs of this injured man in verse 34. Verse 34 says this He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Now think about it. Where did this Samaritan get the bandages from? Did he go to his knapsack where he had a first aid kit and band aids? Probably didn't even have a first aid kit. So the bandages were probably taken from his robe, torn into strips to be able to provide bandages for this injured man. And he would pour oil to soothe the wound and perhaps wine to disinfect it, to be able to provide healing. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn to to take care of him. That to set this injured man on this animal, most likely a donkey, and to lead him to Jericho meant that the Samaritan then walked all the way there. And when he arrived at the inn, the next day, he took out two denarii, as it says in verse 35, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now, two denarii, one denarii would be one day's wages. So you have two denarii, two days wages. Now, some people believe that two denarii was enough to pay for 24 days in an inn for this injured person to be there. And then the The Samaritan left a credit card, not a credit card, but maybe a way of contacting him so that if there is any need that this person has, he's going to contact the Samaritan. The Samaritan will pay him back. Now, there's two observations that we can make about the Samaritan in terms of meeting the needs of his neighbor. First, we see that the Samaritan met the needs of the injured man despite the cost. That despite the cost to him in terms of a torn outfit and perhaps use of provision, that the Samaritan met this injured person's needs to provide a space of healing. And oftentimes, when it comes to meeting the needs of our neighbor, it's going to require cost. Maybe it's paying for a meal that someone can't pay for. Maybe it's about skipping out on a vacation trip to Europe because you're decided to support a missionary to make sure that he or she gets back on the field. Maybe it's going to require money to be able to furnish an apartment so that a refugee can call this apartment home. It's going to require cost. But not only does it require cost, but the Samaritan met the needs of this injured man despite the interruption to his schedule. If you think about it, the Samaritan had a destination. He was supposed to get to Jericho. I'm sure that he had something that he needed to do, business plans to complete, and yet he delayed his plans to take care of this injured person. That despite the disruption in his schedule, he decided to care for the injured man. Now, it's interesting because I think oftentimes we don't realize that to meet the needs of our neighbor, it means disruption. I mean, we can't schedule on our calendars, I'm gonna schedule Tuesdays and Thursdays from one to three o'clock, every time someone with me, they can meet me then. That's not how it works that oftentimes the needs of our neighbor come up unexpectedly. They may call during dinner saying that I'm stranded on the side of the road. It may be a friend that you hear from unexpectedly out of the blue as you're in the middle of work that their family member had passed away. That those needs do not have a schedule, they do not have a plan, and we have to realize that oftentimes to meet the needs of our neighbor means disruption of our schedule. And we see that Jesus then instructs the lawyer to meet the needs of his neighbors. We see this in verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. The lawyer couldn't even utter the words Samaritan on his lips. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. That to love our neighbor by meeting their needs is something that we first have to see, that God has put us there in a place to meet. That to love our neighbor means meeting their needs because Jesus cared first for our spiritual needs. And yes, we can meet the material needs of our neighbor, but do we realize the deep spiritual need that they have? That if we as Christians, as believers, truly believe that apart from Jesus Christ, a person is condemned to hell, Then isn't it the most unloving thing for us to do to avoid sharing the gospel with them? There are deep needs, and it requires time for us to be able to see them and also to meet them. So, we talked this morning about the importance of being able to see the needs of our neighbor, and that God has put us there to meet the needs of our neighbor and see that you should go and meet the needs of your neighbor. G.K. Chesterton once quips, we make our friends, we make our enemies, but God makes our next-door neighbor. We have to love our neighbor because he is there. And the nearness of our neighbor is providential. It's something that God has designed, as God never gets your address wrong. So God has revealed to you the need of your neighbor, not only for you to see, but also to meet. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we realize with the hustle and bustle with everyday life, it's easy for us to overlook and oversee oftentimes the needs of our neighbor. We may ignore it. We may just brush it off. But we ask that as we go from this place that you would be able to open our eyes to see the specially appointed opportunities and circumstances that we have to be able to meet the needs of our neighbor, not just the material and physical needs that we see, but to meet the deep spiritual needs that is within. And if they're an unbeliever, the need to believe in Christ as their Lord and Savior and that you would give us the boldness to be uncomfortable and even in a place where it's awkward, to be able to do just that. And so we ask these things in the name of our greatest neighbor, the one who took time to save us, Jesus Christ, amen.